Welcome to Emmanuel. It is uh, Returned to Mask Sunday, otherwise known as Vision Sunday. Um, I want to say just how awesome it is to see at least the eyes of those of you who are returning after being gone this summer. Um, it's fun to regather everybody together. It's also fun to see first-time visitors welcome uh, to, to Emmanuel. It is Vision Sunday, so we just take a week every year to look at what is God calling us to? What has he called us to as a church? And how are we called to live that out in this next year? Um, so my prayer is actually that even though we are talking about the collective, about the vision of the church, that even if this is your only Sunday here, that the Lord meets you today and that he gives you vision for your own life. Um, so turn to Matthew 18, and we're gonna talk about the humility of a child the humility of a child. Um, it's worth saying at the very beginning that sometimes the followers of Jesus don't share the vision of Jesus. It's one of the greatest ironies of the world that the people walking within feet of Jesus going towards Jerusalem have a completely different picture of the future in their heads than he has in his head. And this has been true ever since. The followers of Jesus can sometimes completely miss the vision of Jesus. In the final weeks of Jesus's life, he's leading his disciples physically to Jerusalem. But spiritually speaking, he has a vision of the cross. His vision is the old rugged cross. He wants to get on the cross so that he can die a brutal Roman death as a condemned man so that you and I could be forgiven forever. He wanted to make a way for us to have eternal life now and, and in the life to come. And so he wanted to fulfill the mission that the Father had put on his life. He wanted to fulfill what the Father had asked him to do, what the Scripture said that he would do. That was his goal. That was his mission. That was his vision. And he was leading his disciples to Jerusalem for that vision. But his disciples had a different vision. They had a vision of personal greatness. If you read any of the Gospels, you see that the closer Jesus gets to Jerusalem, he has to have these frank conversations with them where he wants to talk about the cross and they want to talk about who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's an ongoing conversation that they have. Like he wants the cross and they want personal greatness. They want to be advanced. They want to be recognized. They want to rank above their peers. And that's why we have these moments like the foot washing and Jesus is like, this is how I want you. You want to be a leader? Great. This is how I want you to lead. Jesus has one vision. His disciples have another. And you can even see it in the very first verse of Matthew 18. Can't you? It's in our gospel reading today. Matthew 18, verse 1. At that time, getting real close to the cross, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They're not the only ones that sometimes get vision wrong. It's worth saying that sometimes churches can get vision wrong too, amen? Maybe some of you have had a disillusioning experience with a church that claims Jesus, that loves the gospel, but has, they get the vision wrong. They don't share the cross. They don't share the way of Jesus. And if we were honest, you and I sometimes get vision wrong. Sometimes the picture in our heads about what we are called to do is different from the picture that Jesus has in his head for our life. 
We can be right next to Jesus. We can be within breathing distance of Jesus and completely get our vision of life wrong. When you think about your future, what's the picture that you have in your head? The kind of person that you want to become, the goals that you have, the longings, like the plan. What's your plan? What's your vision? We've all got one. Like the disciples, it might be for greater status and privilege and gravitas and advancement to be the respected leader. Not everyone has that vision. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's a, it's a career. It's the way that your career is going to unfold. It's the way that you're going to hit the milestones. Maybe it's financial advancement, personal wellness. Maybe it's just peace and quiet. That's all you want is some peace and quiet. Or maybe it's just a life of wonderful experiences with your favorite people. Most of us want our relationships to work out a certain way. We want to be nurtured and connected in a way that is very specific. What's the picture you have in your head for your relationships? Now, here's a word for our church family. For those of you who call Emmanuel Anglican your church home, what's the picture that you have in your head for the future of our church? What are your hopes? What are your dreams? What are your secret wishes? Maybe it's a building of our own. I certainly hope for that too. Maybe it's an outpouring of God's power leading to revival and many healings. It could be growth, growth in ministries, reaching many people, new churches planted. Or it could be great works of art being made, community that is both deep and diverse, a sense of cultural influence, salt and light in our city. These are good things in themselves. It's worth all of us asking the question, though, does the picture in our head for our life or our church match the picture that Jesus has in his head for our life and for our church? Because we could get the vision wrong, too. I could get the vision wrong, too. Now, visual aids are a very powerful teaching tool. They symbolize what the leader is calling his followers to embody, his or her followers to embody. Now, notice the visual aid that Jesus uses to teach his disciples about the vision he has in his head for their life. They want to know what greatness looks like, and he's like, let me show you what greatness looks like. In verse 2, he begins to teach. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, Unless you turn, which is another word for changing your mind, repentance, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven, let alone be the greatest. You won't even enter the kingdom of heaven unless you become like a child. And verse four, whoever humbles himself, whoever humbles herself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, Maybe you've wished at some point that you could go back. Have you ever wished like, oh, if only I could be a child again? And whatever picture we have in our head about like what that was like, the innocence of being a child, the, the carefree, no responsibility life of a child. And some of us appreciate the value of being childlike. There's a value to being childlike. But being a child is a humble life. We just forget that. Being a child is a very humble life. Childhood means vulnerability. Children can't protect themselves like adults can. They have to simply stand in their need and hope 
and pray that someone with the ability and power to meet their needs will protect them and feed them and help them. Childhood means vulnerability. It also means awkwardness. Do you remember the awkwardness of being a kid? Everything is new. You don't know anything when you come into this world. You don't know how to eat. You don't know how to sleep. You don't know how to talk. And you have to be coached and helped and get it wrong. And you have to try and you have to fall. Childhood means not just vulnerability. It means awkwardness. And then childhood means limits. Childhood means limits. Do you remember wanting so bad to get your driver's license, but you just had to be carted around all the daggum time? You don't have a lot of power as a child. You're under someone else's direction. You have to be led around, told what to do, what you can have, what you can't have, when to go to bed, when to get up, constantly corrected, constantly coached. You have limits if you're a kid. To be honest, do any of us really want that? Do we want to be vulnerable? Do we want to be awkward? Do we want to be powerless or limited? This is a humble life. Who wants that? And yet Jesus says, unless you turn, unless you sophisticated, powerful, status-seeking adults repent and become like a child, you won't even enter the kingdom of heaven. Yet whoever humbles himself, like this child, is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, to be fair, Jesus is not asking us to do anything that he himself has not done. You think about that. The Lord of heaven and earth, standing in his invincibility before the Father, having absolute power and authority over all heaven and earth, what did he do? He became, he took on flesh, he became an infant baby boy, in a very violent world. He became not just childlike, he actually became a child. And he was completely helpless and dependent on his heavenly father and on his earthly father and mother. Jesus spent years and years taking direction from other people. And his ministry was marked by humility. His greatest moment on the cross that rugged cross, it was, a, it was a humble greatness, wasn't it? He just hung there as a condemned man, and yet he was, he was fulfilling his greatest mission. Isn't that amazing? And his humility just attracted people from all walks of life. They could just see it. The lepers could see it. The woman with uh, years and years of bleeding could see it. Just, they just came to him. They just wanted his humility. They knew that he wouldn't judge them. Jesus humbled himself under the mighty hand of God before he was exalted. The mighty hand of God lowered his status all the way down to the lowest dregs of the world. Bishop Todd Atkinson says this, humility is the very essence of Jesus. And the only way in which he explicitly asked us to be like him is to, quote, learn from me, for I am humble and meek in heart. It's the essence of Jesus, and it's the only explicit way he asks us to become like him. Learn my humility. This, no matter what our life calling, and no matter what our church actually, the picture that Jesus has in his head for us is to become like a child. He would love that for us personally. It would adorn us with his beauty, and it would adorn our church with his spirit. 
You know, here in Chicago, we like our buildings tall, don't we? Beautiful skyline, beautiful skyline. Yet there are cities around the world that have building codes to keep their buildings short. Did you know that? They have a beautiful feature. These cities have a feature that they don't want anyone to miss. They don't want to block the view of the central feature of their city. And so they keep building short so that no, one, no one's view is blocked. In St. Petersburg, Russia, it's the Winter Palace. In Bali, Indonesia, it's the lush coconut trees. In Montreal, Quebec, it's beautiful Mount Royale. In Athens, Greece, it's the historic Parthenon. And in Rome, Italy, it's St. Peter's Basilica. If a building gets too tall, it would block the view of these incredible landmarks. These landmarks are more important than whatever building you want to build. They're more beautiful. Whatever you can think of, it's not going to match the Parthenon. The most beautiful and noble landmark for us, for you and I, to build our life around is Jesus. And the most beautiful thing about Jesus is his humility. So why would we build the buildings of our own life higher than Jesus and higher than his childlike humility? Our boastfulness is an eyesore to God and others. The only person who likes it is us. But it's an eyesore to God. It's an eyesore to others. And sometimes, sometimes, the mighty hand of God has to come through like a holy wrecking ball and take some of those stories off our building. It's got to come knock down some of that eyesoreness that's blocking Jesus. And the best thing that we can do is to humble ourselves under that mighty wrecking ball. Now, here's some situations that the mighty hand of God might use to reveal Jesus in you. Not cause, necessarily, but certainly use to accomplish this great vision of humility. When a peer advances beyond us in an area that really, really matters to us. Or how about this, when things go well for us and people resent us for it. Or when we don't get credit for our hard work and accomplishments. When our plans fail or go badly. When we are rejected or uninvited. When we're dumped in a romantic relationship. When we're criticized or judged unfairly when we are embarrassed, when we get it wrong and we need to apologize and make amends? Or how about this, when others get it wrong and we are called to show mercy to them, mercy that's undeserved? Or when we have a need and someone graciously offers to meet that need and we have nothing to give them in return? Or what about when we learn a new skill and we feel awkward and incompetent? When we confess our sins, is always humbling. When aging sets in, we find ourselves unable to do things that we could easily do just a few years ago. When God asks us to love someone that we would rather ignore. Or how about when we just feel needy, when we feel lonely and sad, and instead of internalizing that, we actually reach out to a couple of friends and just tell them how needy we feel and let them minister to us. Here's a prayer. If you're going through any one of those situations or any other humbling situation, I want to give you a prayer that you can use to get you through it. And it's this prayer. Lord, help me come under the mighty hand of God as you did so that people can better see you through me. Level off the eyesore of my pride and complete your good purpose 
for this trial. Complete your good purpose for this trial. Now, the whole reason that Emmanuel Anglican Church came together in 2013 was a vision. And the vision was this. It was the lifting high of the Son of God in the city of Chicago that all would be drawn to him. We wanted and prayed that through our church, Jesus would be exalted. Jesus would be lifted high in his cruciform glory, in his risen glory, so that all people could be drawn to Jesus and be healed and changed and set free. Jesus Christ is our central feature here at Emmanuel Anglican. There's nothing else that we do that should be bigger than him. Nothing here should be built taller than him. And I believe that the Lord is going to fulfill that vision that we've prayed for through our own humbling and chastening. We can cooperate with the Father as we confess our own sins, confess our own weaknesses, show mercy to others, and cast aside all foolish pretense that would set us apart from other people and other churches in a way that Jesus would never want us to. He must increase and we must decrease. This is God's work and the mighty hand of God will take care of all of the rest. Anything else we need as a church, the mighty hand of God can do it. But it starts with the mighty hand of God humbling us and chastening us. Jesus calls us to the humility of children. This is a central way that we're going to live our vision this year. Jesus is also going to call us to the humility to honor children. This is also very important. The humility to honor children. The gold standard for honoring children is in verse five. This is the gold standard for honoring children and those who have the vulnerability of children. Jesus says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Now consider that. To receive a child is to receive Jesus. If we were alive when Jesus was a baby, imagine someone like Zacharias, like they, they bring you G, baby Jesus and they're like, this is baby Jesus. Why don't you take care of him? And you're like, oh my goodness. I mean, what, what does he need? How can, you know, you would be so zealous to help and protect and take care of and honor baby Jesus or childlike Jesus. What, whatever state you found Jesus in as a child, you would receive him well, if you love Jesus. So that's how we treat every single child and every single vulnerable person who comes through our doors. No matter what their background, no matter what their, what, uh, what their needs are, we receive them as if they were Jesus himself. That there's a holy one in our midst, God's own son. God the Father takes the well-being of children very, very seriously. And Jesus is going to actually teach about the consequences of mistreating children. These are severe consequences for mistreating children. Verse 6, he talks about this. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, he uses the word scandalizo. It means to like trip someone up, to put a stumbling block in their path. It's kind of like getting in between them and the Father. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, to stumble, it would be better for him or her to have a great millstone fastened around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. He continues in verse seven, woe to the one, woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. 
Now, Jesus, as he was teaching this, taught in in an environment and in a culture where childhood abuse was rampant in all forms, physical, sexual, emotional, and in every other imaginable way. In Jesus' day, children had about the same status as animals, and that's not an exaggeration. Adults disparaged children as stupid and weak. Many died as infants, some because they were left out in the alleyway because the father of the family didn't want to raise the child. Most children died before they reached adulthood. As a result, children were seen as disposable, and childhood abuse was rampant and common and condoned. Because if children aren't going to live long, why not exploit them for your own purposes? You're the big one. They're the small one. They're there to serve you. Many were made slaves in both Greco-Roman and Jewish environments. People made them slaves. Now, abuse of any kind creates a crisis in the heart of a child. Could this be what Jesus was referring to when he warns people from causing a little one to sin and when he talks about temptations to, to sin, tripping them up, putting a roadblock in their path to the Father? This is what abuse does. It puts unnecessary roadblocks between a child and her heavenly father, between a child and his heavenly father. In his book, On This Rock, a call to center the Christian response to child abuse on the life and words of Jesus, Victor Veith reports this. He says, in a study of 527 victims of child abuse, researchers found these children had significant spiritual injuries, such as feelings of guilt, anger, grief, despair, doubt, fear of death, and belief that God is unfair. And as a result of this, they're less likely to trust God. Consider this. Jesus said it. It would be better for a massive millstone to be hung around our necks and to be quickly drowned into the depths of the sea than to face God the Father after abusing a child. How dare you come between a child and his or her loving father? Woe to you, Jesus says. Woe to you. Jesus is going to call us to take the severest measures that we can to prevent harm to the vulnerable. He's going to use some hyperbole here to get our attention. It's important. Verse 8. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Severe measures to prevent abuse, severe measures to reform Um, uh, severe reforms to prevent abuse, no matter how inconvenient, no matter how painful, are far better than the severe consequences in this life and the life to come of abuse actually happening. The stakes could not be higher. Jesus talks about this in terms of hellfire. And I love this comment from Jesus where he says, verse 10, see that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face 
of my Father who is in heaven. Think about this. According to Jesus, vulnerable children have the protection of mighty angels. These angels rank so highly that they are like right in the closest rung of angels standing before the throne room of God looking at his face. Martin Luther says this about Jesus' comment. God has such zeal for the little children. Consider how the little children are surrounded by such tremendously great princes and lords. They should constantly move us to refrain from doing or saying anything in their presence that would lead them astray. Now, I was grieved deeply to learn of leaders within our larger church network who committed acts of sexual abuse of both children and adults. The epicenter of this abuse took place within a church community in Big Rock, Illinois. I want to say that this is evil in the sight of a holy God. It is an act of betrayal. It is an act of violence. It is an act of abuse against the victims. And it should never, ever happen again. Some of the victims have made the case that our network leadership, our diocesan leadership, did not handle their case with the speed, transparency, and care that was called for. And so right now, the Archbishop Foley Beach, who leads the entire North American province, is overseeing a full investigation of those claims. His response team is working with a third-party investigator. We await the results of this investigation together And as we wait, we pray for justice to be done. In the meantime, what about our response as Emmanuel Anglican? What are we going to do as a church? How can we have the humility to protect children here and the vulnerable? We can seek to grow. We can take sober-minded action that strengthens our own systems and policies to protect children in our own midst. While painful, and it's painful, this crisis offers important lessons for any church that wants protection and that wants justice for children and the vulnerable. So to this end, I've asked our executive pastor, Nicole Sanga, to oversee an abuse prevention initiative this fall. Nicole will work with resources and experts beyond our congregation to help us form best practices in the following areas. Number one, prevention. We already have screening, training, and protocols in place for every adult involved with our children and youth at Emmanuel. These will be reviewed to make sure that we have the most effective measures in place to prevent abuse from happening in the first place. That's prevention, and it's important. Secondly, reporting. We will develop clear instructions for survivors and, social, and uh, church leaders for reporting abuse, including law enforcement, social service agencies, and within our own Anglican structure. So we have prevention, reporting, and finally, response. When abuse is reported, the church needs a clear plan for next steps. This includes a process of investigation, pastoral care for survivors, consequences for perpetrators, and timely communication with the entire church body. Prevention, reporting, and response are all important. And it's our way of taking seriously our mandate from Jesus to protect our children and the vulnerable among us. If you are a member here, you're going to have an opportunity to review these plans before they are ratified by Emmanuel Anglican's Parish Council. And it's very important. 
Jesus calls us to the humility of children, the humility to protect children, and finally, the humility to find the weary and wounded in our city. The humility to find the weary and the wounded. Look at verse 12. Jesus ends with a familiar parable. He says, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Last year, we discerned a call to share God's love with those who are far from him or from his church. And this reaching out is still the key ministry initiative for our church to practice in the the year to come. This is a way to love our neighbor and fulfill our mission as a church. In the last year, we've experienced, maybe you've experienced firsthand how joyful it is to welcome new people into our community and around our tables. Now, Jesus is going to end this section with a story about a Middle Eastern shepherd who counts 99 sheep, likely at night, and he notices that they're missing one sheep. So the shepherd searches on the mountains, just like in our scripture reading today, and seeks out the one isolated sheep and brings it back to the fold. Um, In Ezekiel 34, we hear about God's intention to seek out sheep that are injured, strayed, weak, and malnourished. Finding sheep with no shepherd is a humble way for us to reach out to those who are far from God and far from his church. Sometimes we look for spiritual influence among the upwardly mobile, among the the wealthy and the powerful, people who are put together, people with something to offer us. Yet there are so many people in our city who are traumatized, hurting, weary, Wounded, burned out, distrustful, and they are looking for a place to belong and a safe place to heal and people who will welcome them with open arms. Many of them would love an invitation to have dinner in our apartments or homes. They would love an invitation to hang out, to play Frisbee. They would love the care of the Good Shepherd and the gift of rest that we can offer them here at Emmanuel Anglican. Some will come to know Jesus even and receive eternal life right in our midst. Some will be baptized here in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and heaven will rejoice. This is the vision that God has in his head and that Jesus has in his head. This is what the church does. They find the weary, they find the wounded, they find people in need, and they bring them in and they care for them and they bless them. Our mission as a church, the way that we just go about obeying Jesus' command is to build and become a spiritual beacon church that makes the gospel tangible, visible, and personal. And we can do that in a humble way. It doesn't have to be a grandiose way. Um, I was reading a story about a man named Roger who did this 80 years ago. In 1940, Roger was a university student. His home country of France was under German occupation during World War II, and people were scared and traumatized. 
The Lord put a vision on Roger's heart, a house of prayer and reconciliation that made the gospel of Jesus visible. So looking for a home that he could house this house of prayer, he rode his bike through the Burgundy region of France. And he was looking for a home to purchase. On one of his stops, he came to a, a desolate village called uh, Teze, or Taize if you're in the Midwest, where a woman pleaded with him, pleaded with him, buy the house and stay here, she said. We are all alone here. So after buying the house, Roger began welcoming in victims of the war, including orphans of war. Uh, at this point, it was Jews escaping the threat of Holocaust. And he kept the hours of prayer three times a day. And he offered these Jewish refugees hospitality with food grown in his own simple backyard garden. Now, when the war was over, a new set of refugees found Roger's house, orphans of war, prisoners of war, some of them German prisoners of war seeking reconciliation and peace. Each year brought more and more young spiritual pilgrims from around the world. They were seeking a place of beauty. They were seeking a place of rest. They were seeking a place of healing. They were seeking a place for the tangible presence of Jesus. And today, this is known as the Teze community. Some of their songs, like Wait for the Lord, um, have even made their way into the songs that we sing here at Emmanuel Anglican. And when I consider Brother Roger's legacy and the Teze community, I see an example of a humble spiritual beacon. I see a humble community where the world can clearly see Jesus without any distractions. Would that we could become a community like Teze. A humble church is a healing church. Would that we become like children a humble church that receives good gifts from her father. Would that we could become like Jesus, sharing his vision of the rugged cross instead of our own vision of personal greatness. Let us turn, let us become like children and learn his humble heart together this year. If you want to take a first step personally or as someone who's a part of our church, into this season of humility in the next year. I wanna invite you to pray with us. Prayer and fasting is just a really basic and good way to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Um, we, we set aside tomorrow, Monday, as a day of prayer and fasting, and it's just our first step into the uh, next ministry year. We're going to have three times for prayer, um, morning, noon, and in the evening. The first two are going to be over Zoom, and um, you can just join us from wherever you are. And then we've got different locations throughout the city for the 7 p.m. gathering in the evening. You can fast for one meal, two meals, or just fast from snacking, which is a challenge. Um, you could be new to prayer, new to fasting. You can join us. The Lord will meet you. Just jump in. We've got more information in the flyer. But for now, I want to invite you to stand. And we're just going to pray now. Let's pray now. Lord, I pray that you would just grant us your Holy Spirit and that would we be like that alabaster jar that breaks where your spirit is released among us. And we pray that we would be a church that advances you and a church that becomes like you. In Jesus' name, amen.